Welcome to the Valley College Connection, where John Kawai and Scott Wigan, two Valley professors, engage in a conversation about success with educators and students. Each week, they'll sit down with a different guest to find out ways each of us have had to plan, persevere, and overcome to where we are now. The show will also highlight resources and services that are working to make a difference at Valley College. All right, today we are joined by Professor Pete Lopez of the Chicano Studies Department at Los Angeles Valley College. Thank you so much for joining us, Pete. You're welcome, you're welcome. Pete, we wanted to hear your story about the path that led you to Valley College, and we're hoping that you'd take us as far back as you could and share with us the steps along the way. Absolutely, okay, you got it. So let me start, you know, first uh, and foremost, I wanna thank you guys for, for this invitation. <clears throat> um, you know, maybe way overdue and, and uh, so I thank I thank you for extending that invitation, Scott, because sometimes I can become you know lost in my own office and shuffle and hustle the hustle and bustle from to and from work. But yeah, I, I want my students to you know you guys to get know get an idea of who I am. And yeah, I'm an Angelino, you know, third generation Angelino. My grandmother was born well, my grandmother was actually born in New Mexico. My but my parents, my father were born here, and I was born here. Children are born here. My granddaughter is born here. So we're five generations, you know, strong. Uh, and so I, I grew up in, in uh, not technically East L.A. I grew up in what we like to say Nella, which is Northeast L.A., along the Lincoln Heights area, Cypress Park, right, adjacent to Dodger Stadium. And uh, I, I was born in Lincoln Heights. I'm a L.A. County. I'm a proud L.A. County baby in 1959. And I was baptized at the oldest church in Los Angeles when back in 1781 when it was established in the, in the late 1790s. And so yeah, I'm part of the history. I, I, I buy into our history, and uh, I grew up there in Lincoln Heights. Uh, you know, to you know, to uh, parents who my dad, you know, be, being born here, and, and uh, all my family on his side here, and my mom from an immigrant from from Mexico, from Veracruz. In 1945, she immigrated. And she's now 92, so she's been here ever since. Um, but, you know, they raised us uh, in Lincoln Heights, working class background, working class parents. And But yet they provided, you know, they they uh, they gave us a Catholic education from day one uh, through high school. And, and uh, I was fortunate enough to attend a Catholic university. So, yeah, that's my background. You know, I'm a, I'm a good old Catholic school boy. So and, at that at yeah. that time, did was Dodger Stadium already created, or did they? It was brand new. At that time? It was brand new. So my dad, being a, a, a minor leaguer, he played in the minor leagues in Colorado back in the late '40s, early '50s. He was an avid baseball fan, and when the Dodgers came to LA, you know, he, he couldn't wait for the stadium to open, uh, and so we were taking we were we were taking the Dodger Stadium when it, 1961. 1960, when we were still not even toddlers, you know, and, and so, but I do recall being old enough to watch Sandy Koufax and Don Drysdale and, you know, John Roseboro, Johnny Roseboro and all those, all those, uh, famous Dodgers back in the day. Uh, yeah, so Dodger Stan was brand new. And I share this with my students because as a young boy going, going to Chavez Ravine and, and watching the stadium and those, like you hear it from other, other people, you know, the stadium just takes you in the green grass, the, or the, the, the orange, you know, dirt, and and uh, it was brand new. You know what it appeared to me, at, like what Disneyland appeared to me. It, it was it was a, a, like an experience at Disneyland, 
everything was brand new. The people wore straw hats. The men wore blue blazers. They had those kind of megaphone, con you know, conical shaped horn. It was interesting. It was it was a different world, you know. And I was watching a, 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 a YouTube a, a 1965 World Series Classic which at Dodger Stadium, and it brought back memories because I remember the black the umpires all in black, you know, uh, old school. And I'm thinking, God, I, I lived that. And it, so, anyways, yeah, Dodger Stadium was brand new. I had family in Chavez Ravine who were evicted. My godfather and his family lived in Chavez Ravine, and you know, a lot of people were were evicted. And he was a World War II veteran, and, and they had to go. They had to just find new homes in in Lincoln Heights and Highland Park and so forth. But a lot of people were 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 pulled out, you know, were moved out, and their homes were bulldozed down to make make uh, room for Dodger Stadium. But my dad didn't seem that. That didn't seem to bother my dad. He was a ball player, and he was gonna. <laughs> he was just he was gonna, you're right there. It's in your backyard. Yeah, yeah. yeah. you know, I used to see him. Uh, I used to see him talking, you know, with the ball players uh, in the in the left field pavilion. And that back then, he was talking to Juan Marichal, you know, uh, uh, Rico Cardi, Tony Oliva, you know, all these land, yeah. all these land players. And I and then he'd sit down and he would do the the game card. You know, he'd buy the, the game uh, guide. And he and he would mark every inning with an X and every it hit RBI. And mm -hmm. I'm thinking, Dad, you're not watching a game. And he goes, I have it right here. You know, I have it all here. I know who hit, who stole it. But he was. So, anyways, those were my earliest memories, Dodger Stadium. But uh, <clears throat> you know, um, I had a, you know, aside from economics, you know, we were doing okay. We weren't doing that all that bad. It, we weren't living in poverty. Uh, it was just a struggle sometimes for my parents. But uh, somehow they found a way. On my mom's insistence, really, uh, to put us through Catholic school, and I think that's really what saved my brother. I'm I'm, a, I'm one of three brothers, yeah. and it's, it insulated us from some of the you know some of the harsh realities that that we saw growing up in our neighborhood. You know, with the, the gangs and and the drugs, and it was the 1960s. You know, it was a lot of drugs, and so I think my mom, uh, more so than my dad, shielded us from that. To, you know, from those those kinds of, uh, if you will, you know. Um, being exposed to that. But yeah, we, we went through, I went through Catholic school and uh, graduated from uh, Cathedral High School, which is right next to Dodger Stadium. And I remember when we were there, uh, the world, during the World Series, you know, the, all the cars would line up and mm -hmm. some of the seniors would ditch high school to go up to catch the game. And it was a lot of fun, you know, uh, <laughs> living, going to school right next to Dodger Stadium, right down the hill on, now it's called Bishop's Road. Back then it was called Stadium Way. But, um, yeah, you know, and uh, we used to explore Dodger Stadium when we could because we had friends who worked in it. So, you know, underneath Dodger Stadium, there's tunnels. Yeah. Um, yeah, there's tunnels. And, and uh, we, used to, we used to go into those tunnels and, and end up in some of those places we weren't supposed to. As kids, you know, we were teenagers. But, you know, harmless fun. But, uh, yeah, um, so I, I went to Cathedral High School, graduated, and then uh, – what was that like, Pete? Can can you share a little bit about what you know a Catholic high school was like? You know, it, it, yeah, absolutely. You know, first of all, my my whole Catholic education was a blast because we felt safe, we felt uh, insulated from the the tough guys, the bullies, you know, the gangsters, and so we were free to express ourselves. And when we got to high school, it was an extension of our middle and, and, and elementary schools. You know, it was an all boys school first of all, so we didn't have to worry about dressing up, trying to look, you know. Fancy. We went and, you know, there was guys who had long hair. You know, Cathedral was a pretty open liberal school. So they had guys who had long hair in the seventies that went down to their waist, you know, and then the hippies. And, but, you know, they, they did well, you know, 
And and so we were in, we so it was an all boys school. We did have uh, events with, with with the girls schools, local girls schools, but um, I think it was a solid education. You know the the fact that we weren't distracted uh, so much until after school uh, with the girls. Um, it kind of kept our eyes on the prize, you know, and you kind of, I felt I was pressured by my, my peers. If I saw them doing well, I didn't want to fall behind because there was kind of this undue, un unstated kind of indirect pressure. Hey, man, you know, if you don't do this, you're going to fall behind. And so that, that was pretty interesting when I think back, reflect on this. Why? Well, I think about when you're there, like, did Cathedral have a, a great football team also? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, the right, basketball team. Great football team. Yeah, and then right now they have a very, yeah. Corporal More so today. Right? Pardon? How was the corporal punishment with the nuns? <laughs> well, there were no nuns at Cathedral. So, uh, there was all uh, uh, brothers. Uh, okay. The, um, yeah, the, what is it, the Christian brothers. And uh, they were pretty hip, you know. Uh, they were pretty progressive, you know. Uh, they weren't, you know, the conservative Catholic priest that you hear about at Notre Dame High School or somewhere else. These guys were kind of hippies themselves, you know, but, uh, <laughs> but, but, but wore the collar. So they spoke, they spoke to us. They spoke, you know, not at us, but, you know, to us. And, and it was pretty cool. They were pretty open-minded people at Cathedral High School as compared to other schools in the, in LA, Catholic schools in the LA area. I've heard from Salesian High School or Canwa. So my, my experience at Cathedral was that it was a, 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 a lot of unity and, and guys that were watching out for each other and, and, uh, and keeping tabs on each other when we were falling off the mark with our, our, our grades and so forth. And uh, we had brothers who would take us, you know, have us go there on Saturdays just to further expose us to, hey, university, and this is what you need to do. And so they were on, 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 on point with that. But um yeah, it was cool. You know, we didn't miss the girls because the girls came afterwards, you know, and, and, and uh, we, we we would drive to the girls' high schools and we had sock cops and dances. So, um, and then that was cool, you know, so I, I, we never had to dress up. We never had to worry about fashion, you know, it was whatever you took out of, you put up, whatever you put on the, the previous day, you could wear it the whole week, you know, it was, nobody was watching. But, uh, and, and so from there, when I graduated, um, I went to Pasadena City College initially for two years uh, just to prep me up better for university. And I thought Pasadena City College was my first experience as a, at a public school. And I was like kind of blown away. It's like, oh, my God, you know, you know, what have I been missing? But at the same time, PCC back then, Pasadena City College, was, was very prep-oriented, very university-oriented. It was kind of exposed me to what university might be like because – Today it's much, much, much more diverse, and and I, because I've been teaching there too since 2002 on a part-time basis. When I was there, it was predominantly white and middle class. You know, it's like the kids from San Marino and Arcadia, and you know those those kind of South Pasadena, Pasadena as well, and Altadena. But it seemed like it was kind of a it was a new experience to me coming from East from from Lincoln Heights. I had never seen that particular. Um, a demographic in, in all my classes, and I was like a minority for the first time in my classes. So I think that kind of prepared me for university indirectly because, uh, you know, I, I kind of saw what was going on. But uh, I, I, so I, I did uh, two years at Pasadena City College, uh, and then went on to LMU. But but the, the major influences to why I continued with my schooling, you know, starting with with high school and even in middle school, was because of what was going on in, in our in the times that in, in in our country, and for us it was the Chicano movement, 
So I wasn't old enough to uh, actively engage in it, but I was old enough to be invited to participate in it at some level. You know, I was 12, 13 years old, so they brought us in, you know, to to protest, to be part of the, the protest. and uh, But that was a big influence. Um, one, because it was around us, you know, the walkouts. I grew up in Lincoln Heights, and Abraham Lincoln High School was the, the ground zero for the walkouts, at least that way in 1968. And then, um, you know, we saw, we, we saw the Brown Berets everywhere. We saw heavy police presence everywhere. Um, and, and my mom, the activist she was, she was involved in community theater. And she was also involved with the Bobby Kennedy campaign in 1968. So she exposed us to activism, you know, uh, either through theater or participating in, in rallies and those kinds of things. And my oldest brother actually danced for Robert F. Kennedy. The week uh, Robert F. Kennedy was in Los Angeles uh, for the California primary. And so we have all that, all that memorabilia, you know, she kept it. Um, so, you know, I was what, nine years old, 10 years old, nine years old when Robert F. Kennedy was, was running for the president. So I saw all that and I saw the walkouts and I saw what was going on and, and what was going on in Watts and, you know, the Chicano movement, you know, so, Vina, yeah. So for people who don't know, could you just describe the Chicano movement and sure. just sort of a little synopsis of what that Absolutely. is? Absolutely. You know, if, uh, between 1965, beginning in 1965, really through 1975, which is about a 10 year period, there was a new social political uh, movement in, in, in the Southwest and, 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 uh, and Utah, Colorado and, and New Mexico, uh, Utah and Colorado and Michigan, even in, in the Midwest, uh, Mexican Americans who were beginning to uh, uh, address the social and political uh, political inequalities of our day, you know, at times, so that they began to coalesce and form uh, socially, politically active organizations that were much more, uh, if you will, militant, more so than their, our father's generation, and more much more confrontational because they were, the Chicano movement was really one aspect, one spoke of that wheel of the countercultural revolution. So we as Chicanos in the late 60s, uh, mid to late 60s, we kind of joined the countercultural revolution late, you know, 1967, 1968. But there was already England's as early as 1965 because, you know, the 60s in, in America was countercultural. Everybody was, you know, fighting, uh, well, not everybody, but many were, many university students were against the war, fighting the establishment, you know, it was free, free drugs, sex and rock and roll. Well, you know, Chicanos got into it gradually. You know, we come from a traditional values community. So many people don't, what does that mean? Well, we respect authority, law enforcement, we're church going, we're family oriented. So we're more of, we go along to get along. We, we do as we're told. We don't question. Our parents' generation didn't question as much, you know, even though they were also politically active. Um, so the Chicano movement was really reflective of the black power movement and the white, uh, students movement for, um, uh, social democracy, you know, kind of those groups and, and Asian American movements too, because the Japanese Americans here in LA and California were very involved too. So, you know, it was this coalescing of sorts that I got to, you know, I even get goosebumps thinking about it, that these, uh, we saw these adults, young men and women, you know, egging us on to join, you know, and what do you do when you're, you know, eight, nine years old and you got adults, I mean, come on, join us, walk with us and hold a sign and, you, you know, you're like jazzed. You're like, yeah, I can do this, you know? And lo and behold, I think that's why I'm here in many ways. 
Because when my barber took was cutting my hair and says, "Hey, you want to join us at a rally?" And I'm and I'm in high, I'm in junior high school. I'm I'm you know 12, 13 years old, and he said and he's cutting my hair and says, "Why don't you join us at the rally? Why don't you be a part of it?" And I'm and I'm wondering 1971, what does that mean? You know, 1970, yeah, I'll go. And sure enough, I just saw a world of activists and 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 culture and music, and and it was uh, it was really a multiracial ethnic kind of vibe. So that I saw how people um, locking arms that were of different groups, social groups and ethnic groups, race groups. So I said, that's beautiful, you know. Um, I grew up in Ekanai, so I, we have a large historic Chinese-American community. And then my mother, who, who uh, uh, we also lived in Boyle Heights, was a strong Japanese-American community. So we had Japanese-American friends and families and, and, and Chinese-Americans. And, and, and we also had African-Americans. So it was, and, and whites, you know, because Lincoln Heights had a lot of Italians and Irish. And, and so I saw that. I saw the beauty of people locking arms, regardless of background. I said, oh, that's cool. I want to, I want to be a part of that. And, um, and so here I am, you know, 20, you know, years later, it stuck with me. And that's when I started realizing in high school that I wanted to do something with, for my people, which would have been the Chicano community. So the early six, the, the, excuse me, the 1960s, the Chicano movement really exposed young people like myself to get involved, you know, to, uh, to try to be part of, uh, of a community resolve and, and, and resolution to, to fight for, fight the good fight, you know. And I think I, I learned the lessons from them early on enough where, um, I started finding, uh, an attraction and appeal to, Pursuing history. One day, one day I said I was in, in high school. At least I can be a history teacher. And at, at that will help, allow me. I love history. And then one, one thing led me to another. I said, I was, oh, not only can I be a history teacher, I can be a Chicano studies teacher too, if I really work hard. But it was that early exposure, you know, and it really came not only from the community, but my parents, my mom, also my mom. Um, in terms of, you know, we have to be active. She supported political campaigns, local campaigns. She had this boundless energy and I'm saying, wow, we can do this, you know. So as a kid, I got exposed early on to the Chicano movement, at, you know, uh, even though, um, you know, it, it was everywhere for, where I thought it was everywhere. And, and then by that, I mean, in, not only in California, people might think it's just re- re- relegated to Southern California or the California. I know it was in Michigan. It was in Wisconsin. It was in, you know, uh, Iowa, Davenport, Iowa. I mean, it was, it was everywhere, Illinois, Indiana. And so I learned that later, right? But, um, yeah, I remember the day Ruben Salazar, a very prominent uh, LA Times journalist, was killed because um, that became like a, a rallying point for the community. He became a martyr in 1970. My dad had just finished painting. He was a sign painter, commercial artist, sign painter. He had just finished painting the exterior walls of the bar he was killed at like two weeks earlier. So... I'm thinking, wow, you know, this is every time I show my students a video on the Waka or the Chicano movement in the 1970, you see my dad's artwork. Um, and, um, he died there, you know, that, you know, he was, he was shot uh, dead by the sheriff deputy back in, like, in August of 1970, Ruben Salazar. And I saw the, the first magazines of his death that my parents bought. And that always stuck with me. That always stuck with me. Who killed this guy? Why did he have to die? And I think that's what started, you know, allowed me to start opening up and having these questions about, well, who are we and 
why is this happening? And, you know, Vietnam, why are we in Vietnam? And, you know, what? Um, so all these things kind of just snowballed, you know, in my Catholic education. And, and they were, you know, the, the, the brothers at, at Cathedral would say, you know, war is wrong and they were anti-war. And, and so all this prodding, you know, just, it's, it's a gradual kind of snowball effect where you're starting to realize, hey, there's a lot of stuff going on that, you know, if you look around, you know, like this song says, you know, uh, you, you can join and, and be a part of, of something really important. And I think that's what really propelled me and compelled me to act. And then uh, it kind of gave me a social, what do you call that, um, a social consciousness. I think a lot of kids my age back then, if you're in your 60s and maybe late 50s or mid-60s, we grew up with with that social consciousness because it wasn't that we were looking for it. They dropped it on you, you know. Yeah, it's like, yeah. My my father was sort of a little bit a little bit older than that generation. Yeah. And I, but I grew up with a lot of these stories. And then when I went to UCLA in the 1990s, he goes, "Okay, look up my old civil rights people," you know. Um, and he, you know, I went to Haynes Hall, Rolf Hall, I forget which one. And I went up to UCLA, and the war was over. It was wow. the Reagan times, and nobody yeah. cared, right? And yeah. there was this, I was in that big gap between your generation and the current generation, which is right. now socially conscious and cares. And exactly. My was, let's just make some money. Yeah. So at PCC, at this point, did you have a firm understanding of this of this uh, movement that you wanted to be a, a yeah. part of, or were you still experimenting? No, no. Uh, by the time I left high school, I already had this inkling. When I got to PCC, I met my mentor that I'm still, I still, uh, you know, connect with. You know, 45 years later, um, uh, 40 years later, and and so when PC when I got to PCC, I just accidentally uh, took a class with a professor who I realized. I needed to take more of his classes, and and uh, he's the one that really became my intellectual father, you know. So that by the time I got to university, I was, you know, my wheels were spinning already because of this professor at Pasadena City College. Had I not gone there, I don't know. I wonder. But he was the person I was looking for without knowing it because when I took his classes, I realized I want to do this, you know. Um, and so I forced a relationship in terms of, you know, being that student that, 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 that's always, you know, at his office and picking his brain and, cause he wasn't that open, but I, he really, really, he, once he realized I wasn't going away, he started <laughs> kind of ta- opening up and talking more to me because I was asking all these questions and he realized that I was very passionate about what he was teaching. And so PCC is really what launched me. That's when I realized, okay, this is what the road I need to take. So I'm very, very grateful for that, that I, I, we happen to cross paths because, you know what, I've been, uh, it's been 40 years. It's been 45 years, 19, no, it's been 42 years. And I, and we, and we still have a mentor relationship, but, you know, he retired already, but still I, I keep tabs with him because, you know, he's, he's, you know, he's a very important part of my life as, as a professor and, uh, it's just, it's not, it's no coincidence my students read his books, you know. <laughs> um, can, can and you, and uh, so, yeah. Quick, so, quick question for you, Pete. Uh, one I just want to say thank you for providing um, such a great um, recount of, uh, in such a short way, the Chicano movement in L.A. It, it's it's fantastic to hear, hear you sharing it from your perspective and as a professor. So it was much appreciated. You're um, welcome. 
in terms of Pasadena, at that point when you were there um, and taking the class with this professor, and I'm also going to ask if you can share who the professor was, um, the Chicano Studies Department at Cal State LA was found in, it was 1968, I think. Yeah. It was PCC. Did they have any Chicano Studies classes when you were there, or was it a history class? No, no they weren't Chicano Studies. They were history classes, general U.S. history classes, but he was able to teach uh, not only history and sociology, even anthropology with a Mexican American perspective. And, and, and why that work clicked for me was because, you know, many social historians uh, teach history from a social historical, obviously social historical perspective. Some use economics and, uh, you know, class analysis. He used a Catholic analysis to our study of Mexican American history. So, you know, embedded in my learning was a reinforcement really of my Catholic education. Because most, many professors don't teach, you know, that at a, at a public secular college or university. But the fact that he employs and, and incorporates our Catholic history as Chicanos and Mexican Americans, you know, it makes sense to me that as Catholics, um, Mexican American Catholics, very different from Anglo Catholics, you know, uh, and Anglo American Catholicism, you know, in the Southwest, it goes back to the 1600s. So the oldest form of, of most people don't realize that Spanish-speaking Catholics uh, predated English-speaking Catholics, you know, and that's just historical, but but it speaks to my sense of, of place because when I go to New Mexico and I go to Texas or here in California, you know, our Catholic uh, history is, is very much a part of our, our presence and our identity, but no one really likes to talk about it because, you know, who likes to talk about, you know, religion? And I don't, I don't, but I know it's a part of our faith, it's a part of our history. And that's what's important because a lot of our students are, are gun shy to, you know, and they kind of join the bandwagon and say, oh, you know, what our, our, our religion, you know, I said, okay, it's fine. But, um, yeah, so that, that's, that's what made the difference, I think. The fact that I, I, I saw myself as, as, you know, and then I went, ended up at a Jesuit university of all places, you know, cause I, you know, I, when, when I left PCC, I got accepted to UC San Diego and, and Loyola University, right? And so I, I went to my mentor. I said, Hey, I got a professor to these two places. And, uh, and so I, I just went with Loyola because it was familiar to me, you know, the fact that it was a Catholic university and I had no idea what the Jesuits were going to do to me, you know, <laughs> in terms of uh, taking me to the next level. But, you know, liberation theology was something that, you know, was, was, was I embraced. And, uh, so anyways, it, it, it kind of went hand in hand with Chicano studies. And when I was there, the, the president of the, of the university, Dr. Father Merrifield, who was a Jesuit priest, he was very pro Chicano. You know, he used to kind of hang out with our community and, and really did a lot to keep us at the university in terms of, you know, financial aid and, and awards and those kind of things. So I saw how some Jesuits are very open to, to other Catholics who were not necessarily, you know, white Catholics, or whatever. Um, but yeah, there's that, there's that, it's all kind of just a, a mumble jumble of stuff, but, that's 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 a, that's a part of it, uh, Scott. You know, so, Pete, when you, when you were when you transferred to Loyola, um, did you transfer as a history major? Actually, I transferred as a sociology major. Yeah, and and I was a sociology major, and then I quickly shifted out of it because I I found education much more uh, enticing to me. So I, I I switched to the education department program. And I got my my education degree, my my teaching degree from Loyola Marymount. Yeah, so I left sociology, 
but I studied the sociology of education, those kind of things, and the psychology, psychology of education, but I still wanted to teach. Uh, and I started as an elementary school teacher. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. So, and, you know, and then gradually I realized I was only going to be there temporarily when I worked on my advanced degree so I could, you know, try to, try to go where I wanted to go, which was community college. I always wanted to teach at a, because I came out of a community college for two years and I saw that the, the, the the largest amount of our, of our our students of my ethnic background are at community college, you know, and I think that's where I thought I could do the best in terms of reaching out to the most, which is at, at a community college. Um, and so, yeah, um, that's that's where I've been. But yeah. So uh, when you graduated from Loyola then and you had your degree in education, what? What elementary school did you teach at? And how long were you there for? How did, how did that go? Uh, I was teaching in the uh, El Monte City School District, you know, east of, of Los Angeles, and um, in the Monroeville High School because I started you know work my into the higher grades. But I started at El Monte City School District, El Monte City School District, uh, and and I quickly also uh, taught elementary school there, and, and more so I, I got into uh, counseling. To work with children and, and parents, so that I became an edu- a, 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 I was hired by the state of education of California as an educational consultant to work at that district as uh, an outreach counselor as well. So I got to work with the community because there was they went hand in hand. You know, I, it was like pulling teeth sometimes. But so I saw my work there critical to to where I was going because I was able to to spend time with not only the children I was working with, but their families and their parents and trying to get them to buy into what we were trying to do, which was to keep their children on track. And with a little humility, little modesty, little respect, it goes a long way with our, our community. You know, once they realize you're not there to preach or you're not there to, you know, you know hurt them or, or maybe think uh, less of them, they will bend over backwards, man. Once you have parents uh, over on your side, they will do and and provide and for their children and for the school. And, you know, we had monies. We won beach trips on Saturdays. The hardest thing was to get the fathers involved because, you know, very traditional, very, you know, so very patriarchal. So once I got them, once I want the mothers, no. The mothers are always there. It was the dads, and I would tell the dads, you know, you have to be here for your boys and your son and your daughter. So once I got them going and we talked about their pueblos and their small towns in rural Mexico and, and I was able to connect with them and relate to them, even though, you know, my experience was different. They realized that they were teaching me things about their lives. And once they found a, 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 a place of balance and equality where we were working together, they, they, they couldn't do enough for us. You know, they couldn't do enough. They just wanted to be there. And I saw that only because, you know, the mutual respect we had for each other. Because they're hardworking men, but sometimes, you know, they get caught up in their own lives and their own condition, you know, their own value systems. But if you kind of just work with them, that's what I found the greatest pleasure, working with the kids and the fathers, because the mothers seemed like they were always going to be there. But it was their husbands that I had to convince that their participation, what we did was pivotal. And, uh, yeah, so that, so I, I El Monte, El Monte City School District, and I was there for about six years before I I, uh, I left it to come to uh, uh, Cal State LA. I taught at Cal State LA and the Chicano Studies Department at the University uh, here at Cal State LA um, with some of my mentors there, and they asked me to teach. 
So I, I taught for, for them. I taught at the university there for about a year and a half. Uh, and then uh, I, and then the, that job, I couldn't keep all, so I had to leave El Monte to work at Cal State Lake because that's where I wanted to, at that level, teach at someone on that level. And that's when Valley College, uh, a year later, came knocking and, and, and opened up a position. And so I, I was, uh, one year, I remember, between uh, – teaching at the university and, and waiting for a full-time gig, I was unemployed for one year, you know, and luckily my wife was employed. She didn't mind it. She knew I had to do this just to get the experience. And lo and behold, Valley College came knocking and opened up a position. I applied and I didn't think I was going to get it. Actually, one of my, my graduate, my, my, my fellow buddies who went to graduate school with, he was working at Valley College and he had the job and he was a full-time, non-tenure full-timer. And so he had the job for about three years, I believe. And then uh, they opened it up for a tenure position. I said, well, I'm going to go practice. I need to practice interviews. And a whole bunch of us went right out of grad school, about five or six of us. And we all kind of just met, had lunch afterwards. And we said, hey, well, that was a good run, right? We practiced this and that. And then I got the call, and I was like, you know, I was shocked. I said, oh, shoot, okay. Um, and, you know, I started at Valley College. Yeah. So how was your life different at Valley College than it was at the El Mounty School District? Like, what adjustments did you have to make? You know, uh, it, it was obviously, you know, uh, the the learning at at, uh, at Valley College, the education at Valley College. It's, you know, we the difference being is that the students that are at Valley College want to be there. You know, they I mean they they're 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 trying their hardest to to do well in their studies, and it's not of having a like pulling, pulling teeth to some of these students at El Monte, it's they're just going through the motions, and a lot of the teenagers are just they're sadly they're you know they're they're kind of walking zombies, you know they're lost, and there's this kind of sense of, of hopelessness that I hated to see. Um, but at Valley College, I saw a lot of students who were hungry for acknowledgement, you know, for validation, and once I felt. I could provide them the validation and acknowledgement that they belong there. Then they realized that they, they could succeed and, and it wasn't a, 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 a fearful place. So that, uh, the students that I've been fortunate to work with, I've, I've seen the majority of them, uh, many of them, I can tell they're hungry. They're hungry for validation and acceptance. And if you can get beyond that and, and let them know that you validate their presence, you accept them for, because I lived it and I'm a role model for them, that then they'll, they'll start believing that they can, they can, you know, and that they can perform and that if they fail, it's not the end of the world, you know, because I, a lot of, a lot of times with my students, I share my failures because I tell them, you know, I learned, I learned from my failures, you know. I love history, and I failed a history class when I was at Pasadena City College, and the, and the professor loved me, and she was very good. <clears throat> and, 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 you know, she, she always called on me, and I was always asking, but I wasn't the best exam taker, so don't fear failure because we learn from our failures. So our students, you know, they just need a – and you guys know this, you know. They just need a little uh, – an arm around their shoulder and a little push and some understanding and some – stop and, and, and talk to them and, and listen to what they're saying. And I know you guys know this and you guys practice this, but, man, it's so easy to win them over. It's so easy, especially our kids who come from these very, you know, adverse backgrounds and, and difficult backgrounds. And, and uh, if, they, if, they, if they trust you, you, 
the rest is is easy, you know, in terms of what to, what what they're learning. Yeah. So it's not so much the academics; they're gonna get it, but it's the emotional learning that they want they want to be a part of, you know, that they want they want they want that recognition, and it's not major recognition. It's like it's only recognition that they're an individual with individual needs and concerns and fears and those kinds of things and dreams because I tell my, my a lot of my young lady students will say I want to be a nurse and they're all in a nursing program then I kind of kid with in the class with my kid around with them I say did you ever think you wanted to be a medical doctor honestly did you ever think about you know wearing a coat and a dentist and they said yeah but you know they say it's a long time I drop all that you know for all the Times I was told that why was I te- why, was, why was I pursuing a degree in Chicano studies is not going to get me anywhere. All those people were wrong, you know. If you really want to go to medical school, and nursing school is a great profession, by the way, it's a wonderful, beautiful profession. But if you had a fantasy or a dream about being a medical doctor, don't give it up because someone told you you're not, you know, you're not going to be able to put up with it. You're not going to be able to do it. You know, it's too long. This is not for you. Don't don't buy into that. So. That's the challenge, you know, to get them to think outside the box about themselves. And I, and I find that, you know, for, for me, energizing, you know, because they, when I can, you know, give them some good, good feel, some feel good medicine, that's what I like doing. Yeah. My, the content of my, of my, my, of my math is never going to change. I'm teaching stuff that was discovered. Uh, <laughs> stuff was discovered like thousands of years ago. You know, yeah. we haven't improved it yet. We're never going to improve it. But the, the people, pretty yeah. wonderful. Every yeah. semester, you get a new group of people, pretty wonderful. Right? Yeah. So I've got this question. So you know, growing up, I don't think I've always discounted Chicano studies, not understanding how important it was for someone to feel like they belonged at school. Absolutely. Um, in terms of Chicano students that are in your class, when they take your class, what's what history surprises them most? Because I have students all the time yeah. go like, I'm a Chicano. I lived in L.A. all my life. Yeah. How are you going to surprise me? And then they go. Yeah. And they're always shocked. And they go, none of this was in any history book I ever read. Right. Yeah. And, and that's the kind of the inherent beauty of it is that, but, you know, my, my that's my challenge is that I, I, I give them nuance, you know, and depending on, the, on what history class, if they want to take an early pre-Columbian history class, they're going to know who was drinking hot chocolate and who was doing what and who, you know, who was doing the, the, the dance. And it's not just history. It's people who make history. So I like to get into the, the nuts and bolts of character personalities about these Montecuzoma or, you know, Cortez or you know, the Alamo. I deconstruct that. I say, look, you know, it was more than just what we learned in school. You know, because Chicano studies is really um, designed to, uh, if you will, challenge the historical narrative in our country that says this is what happened in the Southwest to these people. And that's it. You know, it's like with Native American history. So what what my challenge is to my to my especially those of my community is to let's think outside the box. You know, this is not only what happened, but these things happened, too. And there was a people just like you in your 20s who were willing to stand up in their time against a very difficult government that was repressive and oppressive. And would you be able to do that? You know, would you be able to stand up to the Texas Rangers because they are they are harassing your parents and they want your parents out of their house because they want to take it? You know, those kind of little, just those little nuances, but then go back to the history lesson. 
But see, you know, there was people your age that were having to draw the line too, you know, and they had to make decisions to defend their, their households and their livelihoods for their folks. Or, you know, African-Americans weren't the only ones who saw strange fruit, you know. In the lynchings in Texas and California were, you know, also very, very well known in, 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 in our history. But so, it, you know, that's, that's the challenge, you know, is that we take history off out of the box and say, look, history is a multifaceted organism. It's just not one perspective, you know. We got to look at different perspectives. And, and I like to include other groups in my history class because it wasn't just us. You know, it was, it was poor whites. It was uh, the Chinese exclusion of the, 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 when they were here. It was the, the Japanese during the war. I, what I want to do is make it universal. So that I'm not trying to play the victim, you know, the victimization cards. It's not just, it's, it's how socioeconomics and empires work. You know, the Greeks did this, the Romans did this, the Aztecs did this. You know, no one is immune from repressing, you know, uh, in, 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 in the march to empire, the, the people they live amongst. And so our country did it, but we're no different than the Romans or the Greeks. Well, we did it, and we're, you know, still doing it in some in some ways, not militarily, but economically around the world. But if we can connect what I teach with the modern the modern world, and put, you know, our history, the social context of our history of the 19th century, in the modern day, and say, you know, let's look at, let's compare. Then they start getting it. They start writing about it. Say, no, you know what? Our time was not much different from that, what they went through. And boy, are we tired. And I get some long-winded essays about, man, you know, when does this stop? When does the madness stop, <laughs> you know? And I'm saying, well, it's only going to stop when you get involved, you know? Only when you get involved and know you're going to do this for our grandchildren and everyone's grandchildren, you know? We can't have our great-grandchildren living like this. So if, <clears throat> if, if you know, if you don't like this, then what are you going to do about it, you know? How are you going to – are you going to be part of the solution, you know? And, you know, what, so, yeah, so we get into those kinds of discussions as well to make it real, you know, make it contextual. It's not, I don't want them just to see history from a book. It's beyond the book, outside the books, you know. And we look around L.A. and say, look around L.A. What is the oldest place of Los Angeles? The Alvera Street. It's the historic plaza, you know. You have the oldest skyscraper there, the Sepulveda Hotel. North Hollywood has Campo Coenga, where Mexico surrendered California in 1849. Who knows that? There was a battle called the Battle of Coenga on North Lancashire Boulevard and Coenga Boulevard. In, 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 <laughs> in the yeah, no one knows this, you know. No one knows this. There was the Mexican Army was fighting the American armies right on North Lancashire Boulevard, and no one knows this because no one, you know, our history is really not incorporated. So, but now that you know, we didn't do about it. You know? How are you gonna, you know, how, how are you gonna? What are you going to do with this information? Yeah. I, I tell my students that when you look at the at the photos of the people who sort of made in the 60s who made change, and yeah. John, Lewis, John Lewis was 19. Yeah. Right? right? I mean, these these people who made change yeah. were all our students' age. Yes. That's they were not the old people. They were the young people who made Absolutely. the change. They took the beatings. Diane Nash, you know, who... who right. Who uh who led the bus ride from Washington D.C. to to New Orleans? I mean, she was what, twenty, twenty one? Yeah, that's amazing. So when you look at these pictures, what I I try to show my students is look how young they look. They're your age. Yeah. 
They're just wearing old people clothing. <laughs> it's it's in a patch <laughs> now, but they're, they're basically the same age as you. It's not old people who bring change. It's young people yeah. who bring change. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I, that's what I tell my students. I tell them the same thing. I say, we're too old uh, you know, to run after people. You guys have the energy, you know. You know, it's, and the same thing happened in the in the 1800s, 19 early 1900s. You know, it's 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 how communities find resolve, you know, and are resolute. Um, but that means it means you know sacrifice and bringing people together and and uh, commiserating and trying to figure out what you know what path to take. So there's a lot here beyond history uh, that you know we want to discuss and and we want to think about because we're still living in a time very precarious time where. You know what, what's going on? You know, January 6th has been a sadly and unfortunately some kind of uh, blessing for me because now my lectures re- now, now they resonate with what you know with what happened on January 6th. I'm saying you know those same people who raided the Capitol on January 6th were the same people who raided San Antonio, Texas at the Alamo. You know, it's it's sadly it's a it's a historic character aspect of the American character in the sense that. People take the law into their own hands, you know, and uh, it's not new. January 6th should not shock us. You know, if, if you saw the South in the 1960s and 1950s, there was a lot of violence in the South. Even here in the Watts riots of 65. So I said there is this sad, you know, underpinning of, 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 of that character type that's always, you know, kind of just there hiding in the wings, ready to just bolt out. But... But we have to be mindful and aware, you know, of these kinds of, you know, ideas because we're never too far from, you know, and I tell my students, whenever there's always a Hitler hiding in the bushes, you know, you know, there's always someone that wants to take from others what, you know, doesn't belong to them. So it's always a concern. And I think students buy into it. You know, I think for the most part, my, especially Chicano kids, the students, like you, like you asked, they're very limited in terms of just American history, let alone their history. You know, so when I talk about the Aztec empires, the Mayan empires, the fact that they invented the zero cipher in this Western hemisphere, they created rubber in, in 2000 BC, they vulcanized rubber. I say, look, go to the dictionary, see who gets the credit for vulcanizing rubber, Mr. Goodyear. It's in the books, it's in the dictionary. The Mayans had rubber, uh, the, the, the Olmecs were, were working with rubber at 2500 BC. You know, they vulcanized it. They found a way to vulcanize rubber in their own way, but they had rubber balls. They had rubber items. So we don't know this, you know, because that's buried history. That's buried knowledge. Your ancestors had a lot to provide. You know, sadly, all that went away because the information, the libraries were destroyed by the Spanish. You know, so we have to realize that, you know, that as well, you know, but uh, so they start thinking, you know, all I want to do is have them. If I can see that the light bulbs turned on, and it, then I'm, I'm happy. Um, and I, some don't. Some just want to do it, get out, do their time, and take my class and get out, and that's okay. You know, I can't turn on everybody either. You know, and I don't expect to. But those that I see in the, in the crowd, in the midst, they're thinking and pondering. That's the ones that you know. And I just got a call yesterday from a student. She's uh, she just got accepted to UCLA. She's a Chicano studies major. She just got accepted. To, she got her acceptance uh, email, and she's put on hold at Berkeley. You know, she's on a wait list at Berkeley. And I'm thinking, God bless you. You know, you know, this is this is where this is what, what was meant for you. You know, you were a hard working student. You earned this, 
embrace it. And she was so excited. She's going to UCLA because she wants to do the Chicano Studies program there. But I always tell my students, John, and say, who, where are my next generation of professors out here? You know, who wants to take my job? It's a good gig. You know, <laughs> money's good. Hours are great. <laughs> and I love what, and then, you know, if you can find something you love, it's never work, right? So I said, someone, I know there's a whole bunch of, you know, think about it, people, because I was never told that. I said, where's my next, where's the next generation of professors? I'm not going to be here forever. Who's going to teach my grandchildren this stuff the right way, you know? And they all started thinking about it. I just want to put that seed in their mind. Come back to Valley College, I tell them. Go get your degrees and come back to Valley College and turn on the next generation. Someone's well, got to do it. You, let me ask you this, this question. I ask everyone this. So then for someone who wants to become, to have your job, what yeah. recommendation, what, what is the great advice that you would give him or give or her? I, I would say my, great, my, my, my best advice would be read everything that, everything that you can about the world, not just about Chicano studies, because we're all interrelated. If you, you know, if you have a chance, like I did, take, you know, take English history, take, you know, I took Middle East medieval history. I took, you know, uh, I took a nuclear uh, salt treaty class at Loyola. I was absorbing. I said, you got to just read all you can about the world so that you can relate to it, but also read everything we're doing, but you got to read, you know, the key to me, I, you know, is reading as much as you can about not just what we do, but about everything else, you know, whether it's the Vietnam War, you know, whether it's, um, you know, the war in Afghanistan, whether it's international relations, it's all connected. So I tell my students, you know, because they ask me, well, where did you get all this information from? I said, well, you know, I give them a list of authors, you know, read this, read that, um, read, you know, uh, the Irish, re the, you know, read the Irish uh, historians or the poets, you know, um, read, you know, the, 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 what is it, the medieval uh, period and, the, and, the, and the, the histories coming out of the Northern Europe. Get a sense of place, you know, and, and then read the Aztec histories, read uh, our, our histories here in this country, and don't just read his general histories, read biographies. I, you know, read about these individuals who created our country and what was, what was motivating them. So if you have a chance, chance to read a book on Lincoln, read it, you know. If you have a chance to read a book by William Faulkner, read it. You know, take English, American literature serious, you know, um, because it's going to come back to you. You're going to be able to use that, you know. And uh, so it, it kind of, you know, it kind of works out for some of them. They start probing. But that's my, my best advice is to read as much as you can while you can. You know, once you, and I tell my students this, once you start realizing that learning can be fun, you know, because you love reading, even a paper gum wrap recipes could be interesting, taking the right perspective, you know, about bazooka. You know, even a gum wrapper can be interesting if that's if that if you see it that way. So don't be a, don't be shy. Don't be afraid to to just go into a library and just start reading. You have Kindle. You have you know everything now. Read India. Read uh, Chopra. You know, read all all these different writers. You know, so it's, 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 there's a, there's never going to be enough time to read everything in this world. So whether it's Gibbons or anywhere else, you know, the Roman histories. So it's, that's what I tell them. To me, that would work for me. That worked for me. You know, I, I can't tune up a car. I can't change the oil. You know, I break everything around here. So I've been banned from using hammers and, and tools by my, by my family because I break things, but I, I, I can read, I can read all day if I, you know, so that's my advice. My, my, my advice to students. If you can just read and enjoy it. Enjoy reading, you know, 
and music, read Miles Davis, you know, read about John Coltrane, read about, you know, uh, all these different, uh, Duke Ellington, see, you know, read about, you know, American greatness too, and see, you know, because they were fighting it, you know. Billy Holiday, you know, the movie that just came out. You got to read their stories too. Yeah. Reading, to me, reading is key. It opens up, it opened up a world to me that I never, you know, perceived. Pete, with, with that in mind, uh, I, I know guys, we're getting close to the end of our time here, but I, I wanted to, to ask you a question that I think connects the dots, but kind of jumps back a little bit in the story here. Um, I don't know if we heard where, where you went to grad school at and, and sort of how you decided, you know, what to do there. Um, can you share that real quickly? Absolutely. My grad, my grad school years? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. At grad school, I, I applied to the Chicano Studies Program, the Mexican American Studies Chicano Studies Program at Cal State LA um, because I live next door to the university. And to me, it was feasible. They had a great, they have a great program there. And that was, that was, I, I, I got some great mentors there in, in, in Chicano literature. Dr. Uh, Roberto Cantu took me to a world. I was reading, in, I was reading the, the Irish writers. I was reading the, the English writers, David Said, uh, all these great writers about, you know, the social political complex problems of, of whether it's Southern Ireland or England and the, you know, the Arab uh, British and the Arab relations. Yeah. Uh, Cal State LA, uh, to me, that was second to none. I, I'm so thankful I went there because of what I was able to learn and, and be trained at the graduate level by especially people like Dr. Roberto Cantu, who just took me to the next level in terms of, cause he was an English professor and he just dumped all his knowledge on Joyce and Saeed and, Charles and I'm like, what's this? You know, so Cal State LA's uh, Chicano Studies program, Mexican American Studies program, is where I attended as a, as a part-time student because I was a full-time employee at, back in El Monte. Um, and as soon as I got my degrees, they, they uh, my degree, they, they uh, my MA, uh, they asked me if I would participate, if I would teach as an adjunct, and I said, yeah, it would be an honor, and. Uh, yeah, so at Cal State LA, Scott, and uh, I recommend Cal State LA to all my students. I love, you know, I know most go to Northridge, but I said explore Cal State LA, you know, uh, the Chicano Studies program, you know, and uh, uh, yeah, that's where I attended, and I, you know, I, I really learned a lot from from being there um, from uh, some of those professors that, that uh, I use their books now in my classes, and uh, yeah. That's great. Pete, thank you for sharing that part of the, the story. And I have one last question for you. Sure. Here's your mentor at PCC. <laughs> uh, Dr. Enrique Orozco, C. Orozco. And uh, Dr. Orozco uh, is a product of Van Nuys. You know, he was born and raised in Van Nuys. And uh, he got his, you know, he was a, got his PhD in history from USC. He taught at Northridge. He taught at uh, PCC. That's where he taught most of his years, all his life, for the most and I believe you see, uh, Cal State Dominguez Hills. He was also the basketball coach there. Um, but yeah, Dr. Enrique Cardoso, Cardosa Orozco, Dr. Orozco, who's, uh, who he was the dean at, at PCC and, uh, just retired maybe five years ago. I think he taught maybe like 45 years there because I took him 1979 and he just retired maybe five years ago, you know. So and he was already there, you know, so. And he published some very good books that I use in my classes. But yeah, he's a product of Van Nuys and, and USC uh, in terms of his graduate studies and so forth. But yeah, that's my mentor, uh, Dr. Orozco. Yeah, product of the Valley. 
San Fernando Valley. Yeah. Th thank you, Pete. You're uh, welcome, Scott. You're welcome. Uh, my goodness, I have to say this has been one of my favorite um, podcasts and, and opportunities to interview a, a professor at the college. I just want to say thank you so much for taking time this afternoon and thank you for being such a, an important part of the college. I mean, I hear all the time from students and I have for, you know, the, the last 10, 15 years that I've been at the college about what an amazing professor you are and how you're a perennial favorite of the students. Well, thank you, John. Thank you for that. I appreciate your, your kind words and thoughts. And yeah, you know, it's, it's, and it's not even, and yeah, you're right. You know, it's the students make, make you and break you and, and, uh, you live and die by your reputation. And I put the, you know, I, I do, I do raise the stakes with these guys. You know, I, I don't let them off the hook easy. I raise the bar. I raise the expectations. At the same time, I put my arm around them saying, it's all right, man. We're going to get through this together. And even those who go on and move on to university, they say, I'm here. You know, things happen, which will, when you're at university, I'm only an email away. So that's the, be the beauty of my job. The more, this is the job, I, the career I have is that I get a, help mold young minds into embracing not just us but our, the total humanity you know respect everyone not just us now, don't 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 be that person who's going to just dislike because that's the thing to do no um that's what we're fighting against so we have to embrace the humanity of who we are and you know whether we're chicano or not and what you learn in my classes you're going to be able to apply it in your in, in other ways in, your, in the real life and with other groups so you know, we need to learn. We need to learn that, that that mutual love and respect for each other because that's really what it, this is all about. It's not about you know taking the hours and that. No, on the contrary, you know. Um, so that that's the beauty of this job. Uh, and I mean, it's a job. You know, I, I don't call it a job. It's a it's a vocation. It's a it's a sacred. I call I tell my students it's a sacred trust. You know, I have a sacred trust with you guys. I only have two years. And I know you're gonna move on. So in the meantime, I want to do my darnest to get you ready for university, you know, or wherever you're going. You might want to be a firefighter or a, you know, a nurse, but you're going to use Chicano studies in your nursing career. I kid you not, or as a firefighter. And and when another person comes up up the up the ladder and they're like you, you're struggling, then you have to also be responsible and feel the obligation to help them up, no matter whom they are, you know, because we all work together. So that's that's fun. I, I, I look forward to that.